0: Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Hi, hi everybody. Nice to see you all. So, bohème has always been about, for me, it's, always, it's a beginning. It's been beginning, beginning, beginning in so many ways. You've read about that. And I think that's also a nice thing for me to communicate to people who might be coming to, uh, but when the first time, but they might even be coming to an opera all the first time. So of course I'll communicate that in my pre-performance talks to them. But uh, all of it is absolutely true, and I, uh, you know, when I hear it, I am brought back to being the age of twelve every time. And so there's the inner child in all of us. That inner child comes up. Of course, at twelve years old, uh, you can say, well, if you're a little child, how could you possibly? understand falling in love and being in love, uh-huh. and that's nonsense. I started falling in love when I was in kindergarten. <laughs> uh, I remember having a crush on, on this little, I don't even remember her name, her name was Kay. La Boheme Is what makes it a perennial, uh, is the love story, and why is it, you know, what is that? Now, of course, obviously any opera that is a perennial uh, is a, because It's great music. You can tell anybody you want about the story, but in essence, it's the music. And it's the genius of Puccini and his ability is, and because he was a theatrical genius and dramatic genius, almost on par with his musical genius, if not on par with genius, he he just did it perfectly, and I consider it a perfect opera. There's not a note too many in it, there's not a note too few, and he got it all right. And so why, why is this love story why is this love story so poignant to us? Well, because, of course, any young death is always particularly tragic and poignant, and somebody dying whilst in love is a tragedy for both persons, and that's something we can all imagine. So uh, that, that theme comes... I mean, that theme is one that speaks to it. And so um, I, I think that's why it's always it's always going to be loved and beloved and it's always going to move people. Now I think it's, very, it's a coincidence, it's not planned this way, but finishing the season with La Traviata and starting with La Boheme, I could not help but reflect on the proximity, not only the proximity of the time in which these works were written, of course the place is Paris, but the resemblance between Mimi and Violetta. Now, if I got up and said that, uh, at first blush, they said, what are you talking about? Uh, you know, Violetta uh, is a, been a kept woman and she's at the height of society and, you know, she's been around. And Mimi is a pure spirit and she, uh, you know, she loves purely and almost virginally and so forth. Nonsense. Mimi was just like Violetta. Not Just Musetta, Mimi. And by the way, while we're on the subject, Manon Lescaut. And it's not a coincidence that uh, the first great opera of Puccini, which directly precedes La Boheme, is Manon Lescaut. And it's the same story. They They all have something in common. They are young women who come from the country, come to Paris because there's nothing to do, there's nowhere to go, they have to make a living, they want to make their way in the world, they come to Paris, they find a job or something, but they really make ends meet in that, what is said to be the oldest profession in the world. They use what they have. These are their tools. They are young women, there are always men uh, or women who want to be with them, and they we all know what that is. We, they, they have to make a living. And all three of these women are exactly alike in the sense of their who they are, where, what they came from, and how they made their way. The big difference, I mean, is really, if we had met uh, Violetta, or whatever you want to call her, you know, she's Marguerite Potier or she's uh, uh, Alphonsine de Plessis, or whatever her name is, if we had met her a few years before that, she'd probably be like Mimi. She'd be hanging out with poor... Uh, guys, poets, or would-be poets, wannabe painters, you know, musicians. But she was particularly successful, particularly clever, and she was able to move up the social ladder very quickly. After all, she dies at 24, um, which is probably Mimi's age as well. And Musetta, of course, is a little bit more obvious because she's a flamboyant personality and She she likes to get out there and show her wares. So we see the brash, although elegant, and and she's described as elegant and uh, full of finesse. Musetta is probably a little closer to Violetta in her sense that she uh, she she had style. She had style. Maybe doesn't lack style, but she has she has sincerity. Uh, Manon Lescaut is another case. Manon Lescaut because her. She does not die tragically of a disease. She, dry, she she goes down the drain from, you know, paying the price for her uh, mistakes. But they but they all have that in common. And it it was a fascinating subject to uh, the French. It was a fascinating subject because Paris is such a colorful, interesting place, and it still is. And so uh, that appealed. Uh, it, it appealed in its way to the middle aged or not quite yet middle-aged Verdi, but uh, the more mature Verdi. He, not a, he was still fairly young when he wrote when he wrote Traviata. You know that was, uh, actually he was forty. Puccini was younger than that, but that the fascination with that subject is eternal. And so Mimi, and I'm speaking now of the Mimi or the the original of the. Did you talk about uh, Murger at all, Henri Murger? He wrote he wrote the book. It was originally a uh, collection of articles, one by one, and they were scenes. It's called Scenes de la Vie de Bohème. It's scenes from the life of Bohème. And uh, Mimi is, is a, m- Mimi is a far more complex character in these scenes. And the story he he extracts a story from these many scenes that he wants to use for his opera, and I've repeated this like a you know like a broken record so many times at my talk. Opera is not history, and an opera is not. Or I should say composers never felt obliged to faithfully render the novel that they had read, the play they had seen, the historical sources, we discussed this a lot with Don Carlo, how there's a big jump from uh, the real Philip II and Don Carlo to what was written about even in his own time, and then there's a big jump to Schiller, and there's another jump. But this is what composers do. Now, I would say, as to some of you, like um, you, Eugene Onegin of Tchaikovsky, of course. Uh, you do. Yes. Anybody hate it? Good. If you keep it to yourself, if you do. <laughs> yeah. I, love I love it too. Okay. Now, uh, Tchaikovsky is to Pushkin what Puccini uh, is to Murger. Murget is the original, and there's vast material, and it is presented in a certain style. Pushkin, the same. What does Tchaikovsky do? Tchaikovsky takes, I think, seven scenes, creates an opera, which only takes one element out of Eugene Onegin, the poem. And what is that element? It's the romantic element. He romanticizes this story. If you read Pushkin, he's very distanced. very uh, uh, Cynical might be too strong, but maybe not. He's distanced from the story. He tells the story. Um, He doesn't get involved with the characters. He doesn't, you don't sense, well, Pushkin identifies uh, with, he is, uh, yes, he is on Yegan, but it's more the arrogance. It's great intellectual arrogance of of Pushkin because he was a genius and he knew it. But this is not, this is partially in, in, in Tchaikovsky, but not really. The essence of Tchaikovsky's work is romantic love. That's what always, the great emotions of love, the great of hope, despair, sadness, loss, nostalgia, the whole thing that makes music great music. And Puccini was gonna do the same thing. So Puccini and his librettists who were very gifted, very able, extracted just enough to to give them the material for an opera. Now, you may be surprised to know that uh, there are two women, Mimi Mimi and Francine. And our Mimi is a combination of their stories. They both die of, of uh, consumption, uh, but they're quite different. And Mimi's got a really hard e- harder edge in the original Mirger than she does in Puccini. Now why? Well, probably because we also know where, where Puccini is going as his artist. And as an artist, he made a, there's a famous quote, I write about the tragedies of little souls. What he means is ordinary people. This is the era, so-called verismo, where they're done with kings and queens and popes and czars and great generals and battles. It's really about normal people like you and me. The verismo Verismo is a term that is actually misapplied to Puccini, Uh, that's a technicality. Generally, we talk about the verismo operas, we we include Puccini, but we want to be really, really uh, kosher. No, the, the, the verismo, the real verismo, up is Cavalleria Rusticana uh, and, and, and and Pagliacci. These are this came right out of that literary movement. Bohem, Manon Lescaut, Boheme, uh, e Second, Boheme are, are a decade later and already the verismo literary thing has had its explosion in its day. People stopped, continued, but the idea that we're done with we're done with kings and queens and all that stuff that 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 sticks that holds for the while. And so. Um, Puccini is always going to find the particular uh, suffering uh, of the, the price you pay for the joys, but the tribulations of eroticism. You fall in love, you're going to suffer. And all the operas are, are basically going to go around that. And usually it's the soprano who suffers the most. Uh, now, psychoanalysts have worked on that. You know, he grew up in a family, all sisters, and uh, father was absent. And uh, so there are those who say, well, you know, he was dependent on women, but he resented that. And that he's hated, it's a whole Freudian thing. He hated them and how he took it out on all of his heroines. Okay, that's an interpretation of it. But the fact is, start with go, She dies. Mimi dies. Uh, Tosca dies, but so does everybody else in the opera. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chocho dies. These are, these are these are victims. These are women victims. Uh, you get to Tabarro. The soprano doesn't die, but she sees her lover murdered in front of her. Okay. Um, Swargelica, Swargelica dies uh, because she commits suicide because she learns her child has died. Yeah, and so on, so on, so on. Uh, Liu the last one and she has a very interesting story with you. Johnny Skiki nobody dies because it's a comedy, all right? But it's clear that Puccini came back and back and this is so that Mimi is really his second, his second great creation, but even a greater creation than Manon. So he's not going to allow that to be diluted with some of the facts that are unpleasant. In other words, uh, you know, Mimi worked the streets, yes, but that doesn't appeal. That gets in the way mm-hmm. of the direct, with the bourgeois, remember, they are selling operas now. There's no longer kings and queens who are, who. you, you have to sell your opera. And so, the sense of, that you know, that doesn't go over with audiences, don't want to go, uh, go and see, uh, you know, women like that. They can watch men like that, but they can't watch women like that. So, uh, that's, uh, you'll remember that Bizet was criticized for putting an immoral character like Carmen on the st- on the stage of the opera comique, which was basically there so that the bourgeoisie could have could bring, uh, pr- you know, bring their family or uh, introductions were made between a nice young lady and a nice young man, or their families were hoping would get married. So it was shocking to see somebody, uh, Nature of God. That's the great that part of the genius of Carmen is that she stands up says. That's what I am. And you have to watch it. Okay, so now Puccini wasn't gonna do that. He's gonna say, this is a pure love, this is a woman. We don't, we don't know anything really about the history of Mimi. She walks through the door and the universe changes for Rodolfo and for her. So, uh, Musetta, we know a little bit more, and we learn a little bit about Mimi in the course that we realize that because Mimi cannot, uh, cannot bear the simultaneous problem of being ill with no money, and freezing. And, and so she had, she, we, we, we know she actually goes off with a, 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 a Visconté, Viscount, go- we know that she does that. We don't look at it, we don't see it, we only hear about it. We're not confronted with the realities, but the fact is, in Murget, it's much it's much clearer, it's a little bit more distanced. And Mur- Murget is like Pushkin, in the sense that he tells us a distanced story about La Boheme. Now, he ad- he is Rodolfo Murge, the writer, and he's telling he he recount or recounts stories. We don't know how true each of them are, and some of his friends are in there in disguise. So, so people we're going to meet in our opera Colline, Chonard. Uh, they're you know they are friends of his. They have various identities. But the important thing about Murget is that he tells us a story as a story. He's, he's not in it, he's not weeping with a broken heart. He's, he's not really out to make you break your heart. He'll tell you, this is part of what happens in poverty. Uh, is it a statement or a, you know, an angry young man? Poverty is immoral, we must fix poverty and we must punish those who make us poor. No, this, it's not a revolutionary tract. Uh, in fact, he doesn't propose any program. He just simply tells, tells the story. These are the stories. What is interesting is we don't get to see, after La Boheme by Puccini, we don't get to see what happens to the boys or Mosetta. And we, we're, we're left there with this terrible, tragic moment. We're f- we almost feeling all of their lives have been impacted uh, permanently by this, uh, uh, permanently by this terrible story. Okay, but if you read Murger. Uh, these women, Francine and Mimi, they both die in the, they both die in the hospital, alone. Uh, in fact, because of a misunderstanding, Rodolfo didn't make it to the hospital in time to, to see her the day she, she died. Uh, and then they go on. And so what's the real end of the story? Rodolfo is now sort of getting, you know, entering into middle age. He's settling down, he's getting a real job. Uh, Colline, the great bachelor of the crowd there, doesn't seem to have you know, any any girlfriend or anything. Um, Coline, marries well. He wants he and he gets a job in the ministry. I mean, so all of that idealism that we see in our wonderful young people with idealism, they're going to change the world. And they have no money, but they can enjoy themselves and look at their. Oh, great! But ten years later, they're all married. And one, I mean, one of the most. Uh, uh, well, it's not heartrending, but it's it's a striking scene, is Marcello says, "I was visited last night by Musetta, with whom he is no longer for some time. And she came to say, "I'm getting married tomorrow, and I'd like to spend my last night with you." <sighs> God, that you know, that's amazing. But he does say something. It was a bad copy of the original. <laughs> so in other words, the, the great love is gone, right? The great love is gone. Musette is finally marrying somebody who's going to be able to afford her, and, and Marcello is now, so is new life. So the idealism, the youth, all of that is now gone, and Muget, uh doesn't cry about it. He just says, this is the way it is, this is it, this is it. Just the way Pushkin says, well, lots of things happen in society in St. Petersburg, and uh, Moscow, if you go there, and uh, here's some people, here they are, uh, here's a sad story, um, or here's a story that's was sad to them, but not to me, you know, so distance, this is the writer's distance, um, and now meditate on the, um, you know, 1840, this is all written, he wrote the articles, and then he put them together, so 1845 to 1851, actually, when I think is the year he, he published it all together for the first, it wasn't written as a book, it was a whole lot of articles for a, for a magazine. That's exactly when uh, uh, Alexandre Dumas fils wrote uh, uh, The Woman of the Camellias, La Dame aux Camélias. That's exactly when Verdi went and saw a pl- the play. He, I mean, he wrote the novel, he turned it into a play, Verdi saw the play. We're talking about the late 1840s, exactly the same year for Murget's poem, and Verdi writes La Traviata in 1853. As a contemporary subject, virtually for the only time in his life that he takes uh, he takes uh, something that's that's not. But Verdi, Verdi didn't have a bohemian side to him. Puccini had, had and had had uh, in, in Milano as a young student, and he had, a, he had an identification with it. So, but, but nevertheless, there's something very important about the humor in the story, which is uh, uh, de-emphasized sometimes. If you talk about La Bohème, Everyone feels right away the great tragedy, the great love, the sadness of the end of the end. But you have to realize that most of the first half of the opera is all comic. And so what Puccini was doing in his way was uh, destroying the remnants of the sharp classification between comic opera on the one side and tragic melodrama on the other side. Uh, Verdi believed in the systems. Verdi wrote two comedies. One, his second opera, which unfortunately failed. And of course, Falstaff, which is one of the great works of Western civilization at the end of his life. But that's all he wrote, two comic operas. The rest of them are all melodramas and they all follow all the rules of the melodramas. He gradually started introducing comic episodes or light episodes because they would fit into a great fabric of a melodrama, but he did not, he didn't mix the genres. Puccini was, was more revolutionary in that, in, in mixing the genres. So La Bohème, the first, uh, well, I want to say one other thing about the first act of most Puccini operas, spends the first half of the opera uh, sort of a picture postcard, he orientates the audience. The, the traditional way to orient the audience to where you are, who they are, was by having the chorus at the beginning come and sing the first number. That's the rule in Rossini, in Bellini, and for years and years and years, a Verdi as well. The chorus at least you know you go to you go to Norma. You, you're with the Druids and you're in the forest, so you know where you are. Okay. Uh, so Puccini does this in different. Puccini doesn't deal with big dramatic elements. The first half of the opera, operas in general. Uh, you see the hustle and bustle of Paris in Manon. Let's go. You know the, the scene in the garret where the four Bohemians live. They ho- horse play around for half, the whole first half of the act. And then what's the coup de théâtre? They go off, they knock on the door, Mimi appears, and the world changes. I mean, that magic moment. I mean, prepared, how? By clowning around for half of an act, and suddenly, there it is. Love. We see them fall in love rare in Verdi. I think I've pointed that out in the past. Verdi rarely shows us the soprano and tenor falling in love. We discover them some way, midway, or partially in the way where the conflicts have already been felt. There are no conflicts when these two meet. They fall in love and they're going to go out and celebrate Christmas Eve in Paris. So, okay, so you've got the whole first half of act one that way, and then you have some real serious sentiments and then you go to the second act, which, is, uh, which follows immediately because it's later, you know, it's 10 minutes later, and they're all out uh, in the Latin Quarter, and it's Cafe Mumus, and it's all, what is it? It's all fun, it's all loud, it's all scenes in the street. Um, he introduces Mimi, but he doesn't cry, and you know, he, here's Mimi. Just met her, and he says a few poetic things, and his friends say, ha-ha, there he goes again with these lines, you know. And then Musetta shows up with an old gentleman who is (laughs) keeping her at that time, and she she and Marcello, of course, have had an on-again, off-again relationship, but they really love each other, Uh, and uh, he's, he's miserable without her, and she's annoyed, and she doesn't want to be with his old man, so she finds a way to get rid of the old man, and she runs off with Marcello. So we have fun the entire first half of the opera. And then we come in for act three and we hear ba ba. there's this violent chord and we feel this you know trembling in the ba- in the freezing cold in the cellos and then we see the snowflakes coming down and we get another picture of what it's like at dawn uh, at a, at a um, customs house you know with a, uh, where they take you know they had the barriers to Paris Paris, you, you had to pay customs to bring things in. so that's where it is it's a little tavern we get a picture of cold, freezing winter, and then the story is going to unfold. Now there are problems between Mimi and, and we don't see the problems develop. We just learn that they are, and they're both on the verge of breaking up, uh, if not broken up. Then she coughs. Then she tells her story. So by the end of Act 3, we know that that's serious. Now, even there, Puccini brings back Marcello and Musetta, and they have a real spat right in front of us. So we have a quartet with Marcello and Musetta, you know, uh, uh, you know, yelling at each other like two, you know, old-timers. They better belong together. Insult each other the world. Yeah, and you know it's been done a hundred times. You know it's going to be done again. But Mimi and... Oh, that's sad because we know she's ill, and they determined that they'll stay together to spring. But by the time we come back to act four, she's gone again, she's left. And she's been spending the time with, uh, with a, a nobleman, and that means she's been comfortable. But what will be the, what will be the touching point, I think that she will return in act four because she's dying, she knows she's dying, and she wants to die with her great love, and that's Rodolfo. So we get a mixture of practicality and humor, Mixed in with the melodramatic death. Now, if Puccini were Murger, he'd have Act Five, and in Act Five, you'd see uh, you'd see Colline going to his job at the ministry, and you'd see Rodolfo as the editor of a magazine, you know, and people, go, you know, having to having to work for him, and Musetta will have married well by this time. We would see that, uh, you know, Chonard's probably got a position in the conservatory teaching. But that we don't get to see them. That's Mirge But Puccini ends it where it's a tragedy, and we and and we expect, we we feel you know the full force of that, that tragedy. And that's a conscious choice. That's what he wants. And I mean, if you go on to all the other operas, you know, Madame Butterfly starts with all uh, you know the, the, in art they call the chinoiserie. You know, all the fake European view of what Asia is. So we get all this Japanese stuff because that's local color, and then she comes on the stage, and then the love story, you know, begins. And then, of course, it plays out. Uh, Tabarro, do you remember Tabarro? This is great, you've got half, there's a one-act opera, the first half of the opera is all local stuff on this, you know, living life on the Seine in this in this uh, bateau. And then Johnny Schicchi, you see the whole first half of the opera is the, the the family, they can't, they find a the will, they've been disinherited, blah, blah, blah. And then Johnny Skiki comes in like Mimi, and the hero comes in and he takes it all and he puts it all together. And so this is a, a, a swangelika. You get picture of what is it like to live in a convent. You know, that every little nun has her job and her little function, and there's the one who eats too much, and there's the ones who, you know. And then you have the tragedy. The aunt comes in and tells the story of Uh, basically Swangelica has been disinherited and her her child who was illegitimate has died, and that's why Swangelica chooses to take her own life. So, Puccini does this, uh, and that's Bohème, so if you follow it along to understand in the greater context he has taken, he has taken the comic element and he has used it. And he has taken strands of a sad story out of Berger and has uh, and has uh, made it coagulate in a perfect melodrama where you're gonna cry at the end because this young person dies, and this person is in love. So that's, I mean, that's, that's the basic technique. Now, what else would you like to know about Love Oil? <laughs> the orchestra gradually, during the course of the 19th century, gets, gets a bigger and bigger voice in the proceedings. Now, if you go back to the bare bones of Early nineteenth century, the orchestra accompanies. Now, this is a terrible oversimplification, because it really doesn't. Right? It has to participate, but it's you know, mm, pa pa, you know that mm, pa pa mm, pa pa. That's what the the basses go um, the violas and the second violas go pa pa, and then the singer sings, and then at the end of the phrase, the first violins join. The line, and then when you really want to emphasize it, then you bring in the woodwinds with the first, and when you really want to emphasize it, you bring in the first trumpet. And that's a sort of, you know, that's, it's very, it it starts simply. Um, That's not to disparage it, by the way, and one of the problems is getting people to play musically, when they have to do um, pa, pa, um, is that they feel dis, it's too easy, and they feel alienated from the product. But if you can imagine, the orchestra was actually A guitar, a mandolin, and it it was it was the singing was accompanied, especially in the Latin countries, the minstrels, by a single person singing and playing. So the 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 single the soul was providing the harmony, the rhythm, and the melody. So now with uh, like life with with we all have we all live in a world where. There are, there's expertise and specialities. The trumpet becomes special for playing loud. The violin becomes, plays the melody. The blazes play um, and the chollas play um, and the violas play pa, pa. But once upon a time, it was all one person, and so that came out of an integrated feeling. So my challenge is to make the people who are playing separate elements to feel as, it, as a part of a unity. Now, by the time we get to Puccini, the orchestra has developed a lot, Puccini, was influenced by Wagner without I don't, I don't know if Michael uh, if Mitchell agrees with me or not uh, but uh, you know by the way he went to Bayreuth uh, when he was very very young 19 or 20 he made the he was hired by Ricordi to make the first piano transcription in Italian of Meistersinger so he thoroughly knew Wagner and he thoroughly understood the s- system of the leading motives the leitmotifs so Puccini's orchestra is big it's it's not just participating, the, you, could, you could probably play the operas of Puccini uh, without singers, and you'd still be interested, yeah. you see? Uh, could you do that with Verdi? You could do that with late Verdi, yes. Can you do with early Verdi, no. Even middle Verdi, you couldn't really do that. And you go back to Bellini, Donizetti, Rossini, no way. You could do the overture, but you can't do the, the essence. Of that. The essence, of the essence of the music is in the orchestra in Pugini. And that's, uh, that makes it, on the one hand, m- much more interesting to conductors, uh, but it brings its challenges because you have to make that orchestra, or, uh, the, the orchestra is big, thick, heavy, loud orchestra. And so I have to work very hard to make sure that you can hear the singers. And it's particularly challenging, this production, because you're gonna see it's wide open. There's nothing behind the singers to project their voices. Uh, these, are, these are nightmares for me when I get, I get productions like that. Uh, but this, this production is brilliant. It, uh, again, Barikowski, it's completely different from all. You've seen the Magic Flute, I think. I've seen four productions by Barikowski. Every one of them is completely different, as if it, as if it was a different person making it. It's not like going you know, and seeing a sculpture of Botero. The second you see it, you know, it's Botero, right? Not like that. Everything is unique. And so, uh, but the, they're, they're, it's actually very intimate because the, the singers are way downstage and close to us. from it. it's, it's, it's really brilliant. And by the way, I want all of you at Peleos and Medizon, this is the high point of the season. If you don't know it, that's fine. Fair enough. But you must know it. If you don't like it, if you think you know it and you don't like it, you haven't tried hard enough yet. All right? <laughs> Uh, It is not an opera that appeals to the standard operatic tastes because it doesn't have arias and high notes. It's an anti-opera in a certain way. Debussy said, I want the people to sing the way they speak. It is, however, one of the most sublime pieces of music that I know and it's quiet and it goes slowly so that if you feel that you have to have a sort of a disco beat uh, when you go to the opera, you may have a little hard time, but if you like listening to DVC, if you like listening to his piano music, uh, which is the essence of... Uh, this is great. Popelia. Okay, thanks a lot. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Operas Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.